0: Welcome to After the Shofar, a Jewish Climate Network podcast, bringing you lactose-free morsels of insight for a meaningful Jewish year ahead. With fresh Jewish Australian voices, we'll be diving into big questions inspired by this time in the Jewish calendar. How might the Jewish practice of teshuva, repentance, make us better Jews, better people and better climate leaders? And when all is said and done, after the Shofar blows for the final time, What do we each want to stand for and be proud of when the new year rolls around? Thank you to the Erdi Foundation for supporting these important conversations and for your commitment to Jewish leadership on climate issues. We couldn't have done this without you. Our guest this week is the incomparable Alice Soslovsky. She's a foodie through and through. Her love of good food shines through everything she does from high school classrooms to MasterChef and to best selling books celebrating often underloved veggies. You can find her pretty much everywhere. She's on radio, TV, socials and in print. We were delighted to chat with her about all things Yiddishkeit and appetite. We hope you enjoy.
1: We are here with Alice Aslowski, a former Chef contestant, author of numerous wonderful cookbooks. It's great to have you here, Alice.
2: Great to be had.
1: So you're a writer, a broadcaster, a food educator, so many things. If someone hasn't met you before and they say, Alice, what do you do? How do you respond to that?
2: Uh, I talk and write about food for love and sometimes for money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. Yeah, you do a lot of things. Now You've got a famous book that many of us have in our homes in praise of veg, uh, a, a bestseller. Uh, in a few weeks, you're about to release a new book, I believe, called The Joy of Better Cooking. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, The Joy um. of Better Cooking is, I definitely see it as a follow up to Impraise of Veg, and I think they're companion texts because Impraise of Veg is a real reference book and it's organized by color and it's organized by vegetable. So, hmm. eggplant what can you do with eggplant? Recipe suggestions. The joy of better cooking takes you to the next level and it gives you skills spotlights, ingredient spotlights, gadget spotlights, so that whatever you are about to cook, you can understand why the recipe asks you to do the things that you want it to do. And even if you're just starting out, you know, there are some easier recipes and they'll kind of guide you towards things that are a little bit harder. But if you are an experienced cook, there's still lots of joy to be had.
1: Mm. Great. Well, that's all very exciting. We're going to put a link to that in the in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to watch that and get it and snap it up when it comes out. Pre-order now. Pre-order now. It very much helps authors when you pre-order. That's it. So, um, yeah, we're going to dive into a few interesting topics together today, a bit about Judaism and Jewish identity, a bit about climate and sustainability and food. So we're going to go in a few interesting different directions and we'll just, just see how it goes. Uh, we both went to the same high school uh, many years ago, Leibl Avner College. Do you have any reflections on, on those days, this many years on?
2: So many reflections, Joel Lazar. Um, I actually, so I went to Yavna from grade three onwards. So it was not just high school, it's primary school as well. It was, you know, formative years. Um, And actually tomorrow night is my 20-year reunion, which I have helped to organise because, you know, I'm just really a glutton for punishment when it comes to taking on responsibilities and tasks. You know, ask a busy person. Uh, And I think when people meet me, particularly other Jews meet me, and find out that I went to Yavna, they're really surprised, and then they'll say, you know, you don't seem like a Yavna girl or that, you know, I didn't think that you would go to a school like that. But I do think that going to that school in particular has contributed to my sense of um, adding value in this life, right? Tikkun olam, like we've only got one life, YOLO. How are you contributing to this world and how are you leaving it better than you found it?
1: Love that. There was this phrase at Yavna called the Yavna family. don't know if you remember that phrase. <laughs> and it was. Tell me more,
2: Joel Lazar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it always just reminded me of that sense of community and commitment to one another that comes from really connecting with others and helping each other kind of create a better world as well. That's
2: it. Yeah. And I do think a lot of people that went to my, you know, there's, About 40 people maybe 45 in my graduating class and many of them have actually started sending their kids to Yavna so when they found out that there was going to be a reunion they were like why do I need to go to that I see these people (laughs) every day but I do think that actually our graduating year um, has been extremely kind of um, successful in breaking past just kind of staying in the shtetl. You know, we're all kind of doing interesting things in the world. So we're punching above our little weight, little (laughs) Nagel Avenue weight.
1: (laughs) Nagel Avenue, yeah, very niche reference. (laughs) 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 Wonderful. So, I mean, we're at an interesting time of year in the Jewish calendar. It's Elul, the month of Elul, and Rosh Hashanah is coming up, and Yom Kippur is coming up. I'm wondering if you would be open to sharing what some of your strongest memories are of this time of year growing up, whether that was back in Georgia a long time ago or even here in Melbourne?
2: Growing up in the Soviet Union, I didn't have access to things like a shofar, you know, or a Jewish education until I came to Australia. My brother um, was going to sort of like a, a quiet Jewish youth group, even when the, the Soviet Union was very much, um, you know, it was frowned upon to even buy matzah, let alone celebrate your Jewish identity so uh, coming to Australia I think one of the reasons my parents sent me to a religious school is because it was a privilege to them to be able to do that and I very fondly I can hear the sound of the shofar in my head uh, but more importantly I can remember the apple dipped in honey and that's Mm. every year on Rosh Hashanah, I ask myself, why don't I dip apple in honey more often? (laughs) (laughs) And then I forget again until the next year. So uh, it's just such a it's just such an elemental way to connect with nature, isn't it? You know, you've got mm-hmm. the honey that's made by the bees and we need the bees and then you've got the apple that is only there because of the bees. So it's that circular loop, which I think is part of, you know, there's so many circular um, simanim uh, references in, in, in all of Judaism. But, you know, Rosh Hashanah is all about those circles and cycles. So that definitely resonates for me uh, now just as much as it did when I was a kid.
1: With food systems so different than the way they used to be, so many things coming in packages now and we're not quite sure where things come from. Uh, we have a lot of interesting Hagim where we get to sit down and really think about a particular fruit or a particular vegetable and its particular origin at that time of year. So it's quite nice. So We always have that way to reconnect to nature.
2: That's it. And it's no surprise that so many food writers around the world, and especially in Melbourne, Are Jewish, you know, because I think we're just naturally foodies. Mm. We talk about food around the the, the table. Uh, There are so many chagim that are food related. So it gives us an easy kind of uh, lexicon and, and lived experience to draw from
1: so given we already have a number of established simanim symbols of this time of year like apple and honey uh, we have the fish head uh, we have pomegranates uh, which remind us of all the mitzvot if you could pick a new siman using any food any ingredient any fruit any vegetable what would you pick and why
2: ah well because we are in the southern hemisphere we are about to enter into broad bean country so i've Mm. just been on the the telly talking about broad beans. that are about to hit the season. Uh, And it's so interesting, isn't it? So many of the sort of the the food references aren't northern hemisphere references. So Mm. uh, let's let's own broad beans for Rosh Hashanah. And the reason why is because uh, it's all about cracking open, you know, the outer shell, which may look beautiful, but then underneath that is this kind of tough, nubby, you know, you think you've hit the bean, but actually, no, you're still not there. You know, you've got, you've got to work a little bit harder. And then when you finally, you know, blanch the bean and you pod the bean and you eat the creamy, sweet, nutty, double-potted broad bean, um, you really do kind of connect to that that notion of going, you know, beauty is so much deeper than that first pod, that first skin.
1: It's a nice modern midrash because that's Rosh Hashanah, but as we get 10 days later, we get to Yom Kippur, and we have to ask forgiveness from people, um, and we have to see the better sides of people in order to get to that forgiveness. Mm. Uh, and you know, unraveling people's layers, uh, like an ogre, like an onion, as well, <laughs> um, Yes. Is probably a precursor to really forgiving somebody. To see them as deeper than just the last action they took or the last, uh, the last thing they said to you that you didn't like, that kind of thing.
2: Joel Lazar, that is so profound. You're mm. so right. Let's yeah. bring in the broad bean. uh and use use every part too
1: shifting a little bit towards um a bit of your philosophy of food education as you obviously know and many people know there the food industry and the way that we engage with food has a big impact on climate change on sustainability uh, sustainable food systems and um the animal industry specifically is often described as being a very emissions intensive industry so You know, I mean, eating beef, for example, is 60 times more emissions intensive than wheat or 13 times more intensive than eggs. Um, And I know that you've thought about this subject a lot and you write about this a lot as well. But you don't actually advocate for cutting meat out entirely from our diets for climate reasons. You actually advocate for something called a plant forward approach. So I was curious to know if you could share a bit about what what does plant forward mean and why do you use that specific language?
2: Plant forward or veg forward is very intentionally used because uh, firstly, I'm not a hypocrite. You know, I'm not fully plant-based. I would call us flexitarians or reducitarians. You know, we're about uh, Mm 80-20 vegetarian in our diet. Uh, But also um, what I am encouraging people to think is, you know, start planning what you're going to eat with the vegetable. And when you do that, you naturally hero the veg and then the meat or the animal protein um is going to be kind of more like a an accent or a seasoning rather than the main event and Mm. i think that's a more inclusive message because i think part of the reason why in of veg has been so successful is because it's not vegetarian and it's not about healthy eating it's actually something that we all know we need to eat more of vegetables Mm. But we need to be driven by the, the big thing that actually changes behaviour, and that is taste when it comes to food. I just think that it's a much more kind of relatable, translatable message that's clearly resonating for people because, you know, the, the book launched not even two years ago and it's got over 100,000 copies in print around the world and it's it. just smashing it because it is cutting through um, and it's exciting.
1: Mm. so do you think people are being drawn to the flavor emphasis that you're talking about that they're just loving using plants more than they used to and that it's just tasting a lot better than the food they used to make
2: That's it. And the notion of eating the rainbow, vegetables or the plant kingdom has so many different colours and each of those colours, you know, studies have shown that every colour has different uh, functional benefits for the body. So particularly coming out of the pandemic where we are a lot more kind of connected with the fact that we can uh, shift behaviours in order to have a more holistic approach to our health means that uh, we're kind of trying to think what can we do, what can we control within our Lifestyle and within our landscape that can have a positive impact on ourselves and also on the planet. Mm. You know, it was the first time where some people experienced empty shelves for the first time. For my family, you know, that's kind of we grew up with that in the Soviet Union, and the only way that we got through uh, and ate widely was growing our own. So one of the first mm-hmm. things to go in the pandemic were seeds, and then. Seedlings and then you know trees, yeah. people started growing their own food, so that's a real silver lining of the past few years.
1: Yeah, well, I mean talking about that about these kinds of ways of cooking and thinking about food as a way to help uh, the health of the planet, where did you start to think about that subject about? climate change, the impact that climate change might have on food? Um, Was there a particular moment or specific moment in time or experience that you had that made you start to incorporate that into your writing and thinking?
2: I have been very fortunate. Uh, For the past decade, I've worked across all aspects of the food industry and the food uh, chain. And so I've had a really unique opportunity to speak with people from Growers, even breeders of seeds all the way through to closed loop advocates and um, designers and um, town planners and people who are operating at every stage of the system in order to affect positive change i would say that the first time that i started thinking about it was more so when i was teaching so before my food media career I was a teacher and I was teaching history and geography and so much of that is tied into food and it was very natural for us to start talking about all of these factors with the students and for them to start to understand the world through the lens of food was actually really engaging for them, but also really empowering because they could see that what they bought and what they ate had a direct impact on the planet. So Mm. the fact that I've been able to amplify that so broadly, you know, my classroom's just bigger, but I'm still a teacher.
1: Mm. Mm. do you do you um, miss teaching? Do you miss being in the classroom
2: i I do miss elements of teaching. I miss the staff room, so I miss the camaraderie uh, and I do miss mm. the funny moments with students but i don 't feel like i 've stopped teaching. I just feel like my classroom 's a different shape, so mm. I definitely mm. don 't miss the rigmarole of being a teacher, and I absolutely. Admire so much the teachers that managed to continue to do what they do through the pandemic. And so many of my friends are teachers or lapsed teachers or studying to be teachers. You know, it's a skill set that's very transferable.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering if um, you were talking a little bit earlier about uh, the role that individuals play in sort of shaping... Society, in, at least in the case of the pandemic. And I've heard you speak before about um, the importance of helping people shift their individual behaviours, whether that's eating habits or the way that they're cooking towards a more plant-forward diet. Um, what do you think are the most effective ways of influencing the social systems around food in Australia, as opposed to just individual behaviour change? Are there kind of broader levers that you think that we could be pulling to help improve our relationship with food and climate?
2: Oh, what a good question. I would say that I've seen firsthand the power of people uh, and the power of agitation, kind of that groundswell of support. I saw it recently. uh, There was a a local council that wanted to change the laws around nature strip gardens uh, so people couldn't plant Mm. food or plant anything, you know, um, a, a nature corridor, in their front yards and it was only through the power of amplifying the message and the local community getting behind that that the council got spooked and changed their minds so I do think Mm. um, that it's we can make an individual you know we can make a difference to our own individual lives but as individuals we have the power to agitate really loudly and if we are organized in the way that we do so I think that we can affect change because actually in my experience People, even the people that are working in industries that you would think are, you know, how do you sleep at night? I think most people (laughs) are inherently good and they've got good intentions. Mm. It's just that they've got so many stakeholders that they're trying to manage. So if you can make it... A problem that you're solving for them or if you're working collaboratively together rather than saying us and them I think you're going to get a much mm. better result you know bringing it back to Rosh Hashanah you're gonna catch more flies with honey than you are with vinegar
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean that point about how can you live at night sort of professions and everyone having ultimately goodwill behind i mean people are people have jobs because they need incomes they're raising families they're living their lives and often we don't necessarily know the full implications of the particular industry that we're in and how that affects climate and global warming and things like that and even just a bit of kind of empowered education can help people shift their own their own industries all industries will need to shift to zero emissions ultimately
2: that's it. And, you know, I hosted a um, the Alt Proteins or Complementary Proteins conference a couple of months mm. ago and there were a lot of VCs in the room and investors in the room because it's a space that, uh, you know, as far as investment goes, bang for buck, people are seeing, you know, that's another lever is that if it feels like renewables are a more cost-effective option, then they're going to go for it. And, oh, what a coincidence. Mm. It's also environmentally friendly. So we've got to think... Um, what it what is it that they are aiming to do, rather than what is it that we are aiming for them to do?
1: Yeah. Israel's at the forefront of a lot of that old protein stuff.
2: Totally. Israel's at the forefront, I think it was um I don't know if you follow uh, Gabby Liebevitch on LinkedIn, but uh, I think it's about thirty percent of tech, um, you know tech startups coming out of Israel. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it really makes one feel proud about what, uh, what Israel is doing in contributing to climate solutions. Um, I have a question around influence there. I mean, you were talking about that case with the council and how individuals who agitated for change um, stopped them from shifting those local laws. Uh, given you have such a significant platform in Australian society and even internationally now, do you think that people like you and other cooks and chefs in Australian society could be using their influence in new or interesting or different ways to to pull, whether that's government levers or corporate levers, given how cooks and chefs seem to have such mainstream appeal?
2: I think they are. I think there are so many amazing cooks and chefs and uh, food Writers, <laughs> public foodies is the way that's. <laughs> so describe me yesterday (laughs) Um, I think people are already if you can't be interested in food if you're not also interested in sustainability and uh, retaining or enhancing our food chain and our food supply so um, it could be as simple as you know when I'm writing columns for the weekend Oz or creating recipes for news breakfast I'm always thinking about how I make the recipe inclusive how I make sure that it's um, you know as local as possible as seasonal as possible mostly I'm going veg forward you know it's pretty rare like I did a that broad bean segment this morning there were there was no um you know there was cheese but that was it I could have included bacon but there was no need you know Mm, so it's actually mm. about just asking yourself like what's what am I trying to say with my food and do I just lean back on what I was doing or can I promote you know agitate not agitate I would say nudge nudge mm. people towards different habits and you don't have to be preachy in fact the less preachy you are the more likely it is that people will just see you leading by example and uh, follow along yeah and i'm going to shout out you know there's an amazing book coming out at the same time as joy called um the uh, food savers a to z guide and that's by the cornersmith girls um from sydney Mm. and that's an a to z of using up every scrap of every vegetable fruit you know um, thing in your kitchen and it's it's books like that it's about when i write my books i'm always offering what to do with the leftovers or what to do with the scraps so it's just about being considered with the platform that you have and i do think you know it's really fantastic to see that there are so many incredible thought leaders out there in that space.
1: Mm. It's really nice to see that public foodies, uh, shall we say, are using their voice in this really powerful way. I've wondered um, whether there would be merit one day in uh, creating it's an, an organisation Or a charity that was just just devoted to like cooks for climate there's all kinds of groups we have the jewish climate network of course uh, and then we have surfers for climate we've got parents for climate given the power of cooks and chefs you could have cooks or chefs for climate and it's all through the lens of food and i'm not going to do it but you know you've got lots of spare time obviously (laughs) oh so
2: much (laughs) you know once i'm done with this (laughs) reunion but you know it's so like the thing is What I wonder is, do we need to found a new found like you know? Do we need to start something new, or do we contribute our voices to something that's already existing? Because sometimes it feels like when everybody starts a new foundation or a new organization, Mm. it's kind of pulling focus, and it means that people don't feel like they're necessarily um, collaborating; they're more, you know, competing. And so, it's just—I really think it's something to to consider before you start something new, look mm. around and, and see whether your skills might not better be used by something that's already in existence. You know, there's a lot of siloed yeah. duplication going on in so many spaces in the advocacy, yeah. you know, sphere. So, uh, you know, I think Cooks for Climate is great because it's alliterative. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, that's your forte. It sounds good. You love that. It
2: sounds good, but it's also, you know, that work of setting it up and doing all of that kind of the groundwork has already been done by other organisations. So maybe like step in halfway down the river and it doesn't yeah, have to have your name on it. Join in on
1: something else. Join
2: in on something <laughs> and, and contribute because you want to, not because you want people to know that you're involved.
1: Totally. Are you noticing any um, pushback or opposition, say from certain uh, areas or certain corners of the food industry, say the meat industry, when they see the prominence of uh veg forward advocates like you
2: no you know it's I've got um friends who are graziers and um you know meat uh, producers and that that are doing their best and I think that they are supplying a market you know one example so there's a restaurant in Canada called Antler and the guy that that runs it um mike is uh he hunts michael hunter like what a name he hunts <laughs> his own game you know he's really sus- he, he does his best to be sustainable and and um kind of focus on closing the loop with everything you know nose to tail all of that stuff and he's got people who are you know vegans picketing the place and it's kind of like Mm. you know you're not standing out there picketing the kentucky fried chicken you're picketing the guy that's doing his best so Mm. i think again it's not an us and them and the more that you try to push against someone's beliefs because you think that you are on the other side you know there's a lot of gray there and Mm. we could be working together you know that notion of complementary proteins really resonates for me because one night i'm going to have tempeh another night i'm going to have steak But if I'm having tempeh, then that's one less night than I'm having steak, right? But if you say to someone, no, it's that or this, then they're probably going to pull back to what they're comfortable with.
1: Yeah, that's just human nature. Human nature. I wanted to shift a little bit sideways to the underlying stories that we often tell that's linked to food. And and this is very linked to Jewish practice as well. And just hear your reflections on this. I read a book a long time ago, by Jonathan Safran are called Eating Animals. I don't know if you've read it. Tell me more. Well in the introduction uh, he says something really powerful. And I wanted to hear your reflections on it. So he says the stories that are served with food matter. These stories bind our family together and bind our family to others. Stories about food are stories about us, our history, and our values. Within my family's Jewish tradition I came to learn that food serves two parallel purposes. It nourishes And it helps you remember. Eating and storytelling are inseparable. The salt water is also tears. The honey not only tastes sweet, but makes us think of sweetness. And the matzah is the bread of our affliction. End quote. Um, Goosebumps. Oh my goodness. It's um... copy
2: paste that's going into the (laughs) intro for my next book. (laughs) Amazing! That's that is exactly what I was saying. You know, I really think that Yiddish kite is so deeply interconnected with appetite. (laughs)
1: Mm. You know,
2: and there's a reason why we have food at at the centre. It's because we're trying to pass these traditions and and um, symbols and ideas to future generations. And it's what I learnt when I was teaching. When you start with the food they will remember it better.
1: Yeah I mean he poses a challenge though in this introduction because he, he prefaces with this linkage between stories and memory and food but then goes on to say that as our food habits change either because we decide to eat less meat or because climate change will ultimately affect a lot of the foods that we have access to through for example drought or flood or lack of genetic diversity so by having different or less food of the kind that we have been used to it also might impact the stories that we've been telling about food and so i'd be curious to hear how you feel about i mean what's going to happen to these changing stories do we need to tell new stories for the new foods or how yeah
2: I think some of the strongest kind of stories that have been told have been told with really great marketing budgets. Uh, So there's a reason why bacon was the hipster done thing 10, 20 years ago because the pork board made that a concerted effort and it worked. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I, you know, I've done work with Hort Innovation who look after growers in Australia of vegetables and they don't have that sort of marketing budget. They don't have a marketing budget. Yeah. So who gets to tell those stories? You know, who, who tells the stories and how do we take back the narrative? The difference now is that people have their own platforms and they can build them. You know, there's a, um, a great cook. He refers to himself as the vegan butcher. And he's kind of creating, he's got an an amazing platform and an amazing kind of um, ingenuity in creating the same kind of flavours and ideas and notions that that we would kind of expect from meat Mm. out of vegetables or out of... Um, you know pea protein or whatever it is that he's using Mm. so that's a really great example you know we don't have to wait for somebody to sell us on a story we can follow our own kind of tribe and create our own communities and tell each other those stories but also remembering that we are in an echo chamber so how do we extend those stories out to other communities and make them feel like they're allowed to be part of the conversation even if they don't have a pantry full of pea protein and Mm. you know soybeans like i think um zach does that so well and you know a good example something that i did recently was like a fennel wedge um so fennel wedges with like a sweet chili and you know sour cream dressing very kind of reminiscent very nostalgic of sort of 1990s food Mm. um and people really resonated with that. So yes, lean on nostalgia and yes, give people a different kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be, that's another veg that they get to eat. They might not have experienced, it doesn't have to be a potato wedge um, and it doesn't have to be bacon, bacon. Like it mm. can be, um, I mean, I think the Jews were some of the first to create these alt proteins, right? We had bacon. <laughs> we, we were eating bacon. Did we? we? definitely had. There was like a bacon, I remember, sort of um, in the oh, noughties. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I do remember that the local butcher had those, and it was yeah, it was very niche.
2: <laughs> exactly, very niche because you know we weren't able to mix meat and milk, and so how do you create, you know, lasagna without meat? Well, mm. you use fake mince. So maybe yeah. we're sort of plant forward by nature.
1: Well, it's interesting. <laughs> you refer to the marketing budgets of particular industries. Today, storytelling is of everything. The turnaround is very short, partly because our attention spans are shorter, partly because of social media. (laughs) So we're trying to create, generate new stories very quickly, consume them, make new ones. And it's a very rapid cycle, whereas... The stories say the Jews have been telling about our food, like charoset for example on Pesach, you know it's supposed to remind us of the mortar that the Jews used when they when they built bricks for the pyramids thousands of years ago. I mean that's a very slow and it's a multi-thousand year sort of story so it's interesting. It's a challenge of a story. To, a, it is a challenge <laughs> of a story and it's just the time scales are so much different now. Things are so fast and I wonder Uh, maybe it's all just a little bit accidental, you know, somebody, you know, a particular food variety morphs a little bit and someone notices that the taste has changed. It reminds them of something. They start telling their friends about it. And then only a few generations later do we realize, Oh, we now use this food to remind us of this thing. And maybe things aren't as deliberate as we we often think they are. I don't know. Uh,
2: The virality of food trends has definitely shifted, but I think, um, you know, some of these enduring ones, (sighs) If we think about what role the retelling, the telling and retelling, that's a bit memey, isn't it? Mm, so true. it's just that memes now, the acceleration of communication between people, um, you know, we spend upwards of five, six hours on that little box every day. So if mm. you combined all those hours together, then you've probably got a couple of thousand years at least. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> that's true. Just the volume of data.
2: That's it. Yeah. What is it? Uh, The next book of the Torah. It's like data-driven. AI. AI wrote it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh. So, I mean, jumping, yeah, into a bit more Jewishness here in our last few... um, Few questions together. As I mentioned at the beginning, this time of year is really important for Teshuvah doing repentance and reflecting on the year that we've had and the year that's going to come up and how we might want to do things a little bit differently or a little bit better. When it comes to food and cooking, how do you see the last kind of year or two that we've had and what do you want to see done better in this kind of sphere in terms of sustainability, food, and climate in the year ahead?
2: So, what I would say. Is that notion you know coming back to that notion of closed loop I think that the last few years have taught us that we can't rely on the existence of what we want on the shelf right away food costs through the roof so people can't just go and grab a tomato in the middle of winter and some cucumber and some capsicum because that's the three vegetables that they eat so my hope is that people continue to push themselves and recognize that even just making the choice to try something new, um, even if it's not perfect the first time around, the more that you do it, the better you get at it. You know, coming back to Jewishness, you know, um, you don't learn you don't learn the Gemara in your first sesh, right? It takes time, but every time that you read. You understand more, and that's exactly the same thing with cooking and with cookbooks and just with food in general. Flying hours is what it comes down to. So people have been in their kitchens so much more over the past few years, and I just hope that they never leave. I hope that now that they're there, they're feeling more comfortable. They're realizing that it's a place of connection and uh, also a place of achievement. I hope <laughs> you know. You start with something, you turn it into something else. It's alchemy. So. Um, I think that's very apt, you know, amen.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, amen is, you know, the last, I mean, the last amen of Yom Kippur, we have a, I mean, the name of our podcast is after the shofar, um, the allusion there is to the final shofar blow at the end of Yom Kippur, where a lot of people have been fasting and they're a bit tired and they've put everything on the table. Mm. Um, is there something you want people to be thinking and feeling at the end of that, that shofar blow in terms of their relationship with food in the coming year?
2: So, part of, I think part of the beauty of Yom Kippur is, and I don't actually think Jews do this very well, if I'm honest. Like, <laughs> I don't think that Jews naturally are very good at letting things go. Um, and the notion of mm. Yom Kippur is like you've asked for forgiveness and then you let it go, right? So, what I would say. <laughs> is that there's a lot of guilt and shame when it comes to food and cooking you know I'm not good enough or I feel guilty because I've just served my kids um you know takeaway when I should have been cooking from scratch or whatever it is that's that guilt and the shame of oh I shouldn't have eaten that or um I sh- you know I, I should know better all of those feelings are holding you back when it comes to being a cook, when it comes to being an eater, when it comes to just being a well-rounded, comfortable person in this world. So, you know, tap into yourself, you know, you'll be hungry. So I guess you'll already be in your kind of gut thinking anyway. So check in with like your child self, with your inner voice, and maybe say sorry for all the years that you've spent wasting time thinking that you should be better than you are you know, than you are already like you are enough wherever you are. So, um, say sorry to you and then let it go.
1: Mm. Nice.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it.
1: Yeah. You always have to forgive yourself before you forgive others. That's it. Anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to share about any of your work, any of the themes here on climate sustainability, Judaism, really anything at all? I haven't mentioned that you.
2: No, I think um, you know. I think I think this is a nice little contained unit. I mean, um, people might want to know about um, the Phenomenon Project. Like, if you're listening to this and you're a climate concerned individual who happens to have kids at school or is a teacher, then um, I didn't stop teaching because we've got this whole program that's funded by the growers of vegetables fruit seeds and nuts in australia Hort innovation called phenomenon with an m so if you check out phenomenon.com.au there's a whole bunch of digital resources that you can access um, video podcast a movement wheel if you want to give your kids brain breaks as well as lesson plans and curriculum documents everything to empower you to find opportunities to incorporate food ergo sustainability and being more climate conscious into your lessons regardless of whether that's geography history english art drama maths you know it's science across the spectrum it's really amazing stuff
1: great well we'll have a link to phenomenon in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to look that up that's a great Great little reference there. Um, final uh, part of our discussion together. We invited our podcast guests to have a crack at blowing a shofar if they have one lying around. Do you have a shofar lying around by any chance?
2: What a coincidence. I don't have a shofar lying around, but I've got something else I'm gonna blow for you. It's just come to me. I love it so much. All right. Get ready. <laughs> Did you hear that?
1: What was that? It sounded like a piece of material.
2: I'm going to do it again. I hope this doesn't ruin my very nice microphone. Okay.
1: Are you just blowing through your lips with nothing? No.
2: Do you want me to tell you? What is it? I'm blowing bubbles.
1: Ah, so good. Okay, (laughs) now that I have context, go again. I want to see if I can superimpose my... Oh, that makes a lot of sense now. I'm seeing everything.
2: <laughs> There's a little bubble that's landed on my Neumann. One sec. There you go. Done.
1: That's good. That's a very, it's the, it's the gentlest shofar we've ever heard.
2: <laughs> but so deep and meaningful.
1: So deep and meaningful. Alice Oslovsky, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and we've learned a lot and we hope our audience has learned a lot as well.
2: Thank you, Joel Lazar, and Mazeltov to you on all of your work, and you know, may it grow from strength to strength.
1: Amen.
0: <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to JCN's Elul Climate Podcast after the Shofar. We'll be back with another episode next week. If you want to learn more about what was discussed in the podcast, check out our show notes. Until then, follow us on our social media at Jewish Climate Network to see what else we're up to. We hope your week is filled with teshuva, tefillah, tzedakah, and thinking about how we will make the coming year count for our climate. Shana tova!